Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Okay. So when I was a kid, I had this weird thing about teeth. Like, I would actually have nightmares about, like, these disembodied mouths with teeth, not even like scary teeth, just teeth coming towards me. Um, And I would wake up screaming and like, I would not go near the, like those, you know, those little chattery teeth things that they have at toy stores. I would not even go near them. I was deathly afraid of them. And even now as an adult, I kind of have this weird thing about teeth. Well, Lucy was like, Oh, I know where that came from. You, you, you just read that story, that post story about the guy that was obsessed with the teeth. And I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) And I had never heard of this story before. So that of course I had to go and find it because of course it's all over the internet because it's public domain. And um, so I I find the story and I was like, oh my God, how have I never found this story before? Because it's terrifying. Because it sounds amazing. I don't know this story at all. I've I've never heard of this. it's called Berenice, and I guess I'm pronouncing that correctly. I've seen like four different ways to pronounce it online, um, but it looks like Bernice, but it's not. It's Berenice. Okay. But it's it's about this this guy. I'm not going to read the whole thing because there are, I mean, Poe is obviously getting paid by the word, so <laughs> <laughs> the story is really long. Uh, well, it's not really long, but I mean, there's like these, there's these long passages of you know, words that are very large and multi-syllabic that sound really good, but the sentence itself really kind of loses meaning once you get to like the 40th line. <laughs> um, so I, I skipped a lot of those parts. But anyway, so the story is about this um, about this guy who's like totally in his head all the time. And he has what he, co- he considers it to be like a mental disease that he is a monomaniac he obsesses about objects okay and um so he lives in this big gothic house of course with his cousin named berenice and um she is very beautiful she is pretty much his opposite she's very beautiful she's very lifelike she you know she just loves to go out into the onto the moors and run and you know she's just you know um everything he's not and he kind of falls in love with her, um, but not for reasons that you would suspect. So, oh, okay. Anyhow. So, so before start, you get started, yeah. before you get started, tell us who you are. Oh, <laughs> that would be, that would probably be helpful, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, see, like, so this is meant to be really conversational, so don't worry about yeah, that. Well, that's good. That's yeah. good because, yeah, yeah. Um, and I normally hold conversations like this completely out of order and, you know. Likewise. Um, so I feel very comfortable. Yay. 
Well, I'm Alexandra Christian. Um, I mostly write paranormal and contemporary romance. Um, but I also have this weird Southern Gothic horror thing as going on as well. Like I love to, I love to write horror. I love to read horror. But the weird thing is, is it takes me a while to get an idea for horror. So usually my, um, my forays into that genre are short and sweet. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, and I'm really not sure what it says about myself as a romance novelist. Well, are you familiar with Barbara Crampton? The, uh, she mm-hmm. played the female lead in, in Reanimator. And, yes, um, yes. Yeah, okay, so she's phenomenally fascinating. I love her. Uh, she's great on Twitter. And mm. I read a really, really interesting interview with her where she talked about how she wants like actively pursues opportunities to help get movies made if they feature women who are villains in horror stories, because her take is like horror is a great genre for people expressing their rage and Mm -hmm. women have so much to be angry about. And it's so legitimate that (laughs) that means that like the horror comes from a real place, you know? Right. And I just, I love horror written by women i think there is no better genre frankly yeah absolutely actually i just finished um proofreading a um, book that's going to be coming out from mocha memoirs um in the next month or so and it's called slice girls and it's all splatterpunk written by women which (sighs) it's amazing there and it's it's all very angry women taking revenge on um very stupid men who's crossed them (laughs) I want this so badly. Oh my God. I bet it's so good. It is good. It is very, very good. Um, some of it now I will say, and I, I used to be, I don't know if this is a product of me getting older or what, but I used to be very, I used to be very much on board with Splatterpunk. Like I had, you know, all of like the original Splatterpunk anthology. I had all of the um, iterations of that. Um, and I loved that genre but there are, as I've gotten older, it's harder for me to take. And I don't know why that is. Um, some of the, some of the stories are very um, raw and gruesome. I will say that. So if that's what you're looking for. Something that like has really appealed to me more in horror in the last, I don't know, probably five, 10 years is like exploring the deeply messed up, uh, like emotional effects of these circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and not so much like, oh, there's so many blood and guts everywhere, you know, uh, and that, so Michael and I have been listening to a bunch of, um, Stephen King books mm-hmm. and just like, there's so much Stephen King that I haven't read. And now like mm-hmm. that I read them, I just am stunned at how good and how deep like the emotional content is and the way that he really yeah. explores like trauma and the way that trauma affects people and the way that people like carry those traumas forward and, and then inflict them on others and I feel like that's yeah. so fascinating and that's that's what I love about yeah. horror oh yeah and you know what I, I really feel like that's kind of that sort of writing is kind of rare in horror um recent in more recent horror um I I don't know it's I, I I was having a hard time. I, I decided that I was reading too much Stephen King. Like, 
maybe I'm too self-reflective. I don't know, but I I felt myself getting into this thing where the only per, only thing I was ever reading were Stephen King books. Like I get stuck on people, and I've been stuck on Stephen King since I was like 11 years old. Which again, that probably says terrible things about me and my no, character. I, th- I think that says um, phenomenal things, but. <laughs> But, I, you know, I was like, you know, I need to branch out. If I'm going to write books, then I need to, like, read more stuff. So I would find myself trying to read other um, horror novelists, and they were so good. They're so well-written, but I, was, I apparently kept finding ones that they really didn't have any emotional payoff whatsoever. I didn't get really, I didn't get really invested in a lot of the characters because there just really wasn't a whole lot to get invested about, you know? Yeah. If that makes any sense. Um, but, and I realize now that it, the whole thing is it's because I've been reading Stephen King for so long. So then I end up going back to Stephen King and I'm right back where I started. <laughs> I've gotten I mean, stuck I, on I, Nora Roberts lately. Like I don't read anything but Nora Roberts romances. I got to stop that. <laughs> I, uh, I got in trouble in driver's ed for sitting in the back of the room reading Christine. I thought it was very clever. <laughs> of me but you know <laughs> so i feel it i just See, like i read a I lot should, of Stephen you and King. i should have been friends in high school right. because like i got i got in trouble in a class one time because i was sitting in the back it was it was biology class actually i remember it clearly because i had the biology book in front of me and the teacher was like droning on about whatever i had an anise nin book a copy of little birds by anise nin stuck into the middle of the science book so i was reading anise nin <laughs> and everybody else was talking about biology right I'm glad she didn't call on me because that would have been bad. Probably would have been expelled. Yeah, I thought, you know, I mean, like, I I read a ton of Stephen King in high school. And then for whatever reason, just like, I think in college, I just sort of lost time to do reading for fun for a long time. And then when I came back to it, I mostly read, like, fantasy or, like, a lot of horror by women, um, a lot Mm -hmm. of science fiction, and it kind of like took me some time to get work, to work my way back around to Stephen King, but I'm so glad I did. Like I just yeah. read Salem's Lot and it was phenomenally good. Yes. Oh my God. I just read Salem's Lot um, like summer before last. And I was like, how did I miss this book in all these years? Yeah. So good. And Dr. And Sleep a was a phenomenally book. good sequel, you know? Like, yes. Oh. But why did they? Okay. Have you seen the movie? I have, and I love the movie, even though it's I very love different. the movie. Yes, I didn't. I did not like the ending of the movie. Oh, see, okay. I, mean, I like the ending of the movie as an ending for that movie, and yeah, I like the ending yeah, exactly. of the book as an ending for that book. Yeah, but I'm like, I don't know. I just, I guess I was expecting. I liked, I liked the the resolution with Jack. Um, mm. at the end of the book, Doctor Sleep. I did not like what they did in the movie with Jack because I'm of the opinion. Well, and, and it's Stanley Kubrick's fault. I mean, we could probably have like a whole discussion about <laughs> Stanley Kubrick because I am very anti Stanley Kubrick, but I understand that I am in the minority. Um, but his, his take on the, on the, on the book was Jack was a crazy damaged person from the very first frame. And, that is not the Jack Torrance in The Shining, the book. In the book, he is a good person who bad things have happened to, who the hotel has taken advantage of. And that is not what I get from the Kubrick movie. 
I think that like my take on the book is that Jack wants to be good, but that he is like so messed up internally that it is. I can see that. That the hotel is able to take advantage of him, but that he has not done a great job himself so far. Um, But like ultimately what it really boils down to is that makes the ending of the book very meaningful, you know? Yeah. And like the choices that he makes in that conclusion to the book are obviously very different from the movie. And like the contrast there is really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. See, you could do like a whole show on the shining. Oh, there's easily, there's a lot to unpack in the shining. Totally. (laughs) Okay, well, welcome I mean, to Stephen you know, King like Talk. My, my favorite Stephen King book of all time is Pet Cemetery, which is number one, one of the ones that he hates the most. He like barely even remembers writing it. And two is probably one of the simplest. I mean, no, that's okay. That's unfair. That's unfair to say that, that it's simple and kind of just like a monster of the week sort of thing. Um, because it is a lot about family and grief and loss and what you know how far would you go to keep to keep this family unit together and and Mm -hmm. all that so I mean there is depth to that story but I don't think it's anywhere near as deep as say The Shining or (laughs) Dolores Claiborne which I think is a phenomenal book I think they should be teaching Dolores Claiborne in universities I haven't read that one, but now I want to. I don't even know what it's about, but you know. Oh my God, it's so good. It's like the best feminist book ever, but it was written by a man. And and I'm sure that like, I'm losing part of my feminist card by saying that, but (laughs) um, it's really good. It's, you know, um, it's horror, but it's kind of a, it's kind of an everyday horror sort of thing. Um, Dolores is this woman and she lives out on this island with her husband who is abusive and um, she works for this lady who's the rich lady on the island who is also an abused wife but in a different sort of way Um, and so she decides the only person that can change her situation is her and she is kind of forced to change her situation so Hmm. yeah it's a really good book you should totally read it now i really want to read that yeah see stephen king should hire me to recommend his books to other people (laughs) i would happily recommend you for that job yay well awesome that's awesome so tell us what you're gonna read from (sighs) okay so i'm gonna read this story um by edgar Allan poe that i had never actually heard of before called berenice um and it's about a guy who is basically what i guess we would call nowadays obsessive compulsive and he has a very odd obsession and i'm gonna kind of like skip around in it a little bit because i want to i want to read like the story because the story itself is so freaking scary i can't believe i never read it before um but you can definitely tell that Poe was paid by the word because they're really like these long <laughs> unending passages that really don't move the story ahead. So I've kind of tried to chop it up a little bit. So 
During the brightest days of her unparalleled beauty, most surely I had never loved her. In the strange anomaly of my existence, feelings with me had never been of the heart, and my passions always were of the mind. Through the, gray, through the gray of the early morning, among the trellis shadows of the forest at noonday, and in the silence of my library at night, she had flitted by my eyes, and I had seen her, not as the living and breathing Berenice, but as the Berenice of a dream, not as a being of the earth, earthly, but as the abstraction of such a being, not as a thing to admire, but to analyze, not as an object of love, but as the theme of most abstruse, although desultory speculation. And now, now I shuddered in her presence and grew pale at her approach, yet bitterly lamenting her fallen and desolate condition. I knew she had left me long, and in an evil moment, I spoke to her of marriage. And at length, the period of our nuptials was approaching, when upon an afternoon in the winter of the year, one of those unseasonably warm, calm, and misty days, which are the nurse of the beautiful Halcyon, I sat and sat, as I thought alone in the inner apartment of my library, but uplifting my eyes, Berenice stood before me. Was it my own excited imagination or the misty influence of the atmosphere or the uncertain twilight of the chamber or the gray draperies which fell around her figure that it caused to loom up in such an unnatural, uh, to such an unnatural a degree? I could not tell. Perhaps she had grown taller since her malady. She spoke, however, no word, and I, not for worlds, could I have uttered a syllable. An icy chill ran through my frame. A sense of unsufferable anxiety oppressed me. A consuming curiosity pervaded my soul, and sinking back into the, upon the chair, I remained for some time breathless and motionless with my eyes riveted upon her person. Alas, its emaciation was excessive, and not one vestige of the former being lurked in any single line of the contour. My burning glances at length fell upon her face. The forehead was high and very pale and singularly placid, and once golden hair fell partially over it and overshadowed the hollow temples with ringlets now black as the raven's wing and jarring discordantly in their fantastic character with the reigning melancholy of the countenance. The eyes were lifeless and lusterless, and I shrunk involuntarily from their glassy stare to the contemplation of the thin and shrunken lips. They parted, and in a smile of peculiar meaning, the teeth of the changed Berenice disclosed themselves slowly to my view. Would God that I had never beheld them, or that having done so, I had died. The shutting of a door disturbed me, and looking up, I found my cousin had departed from the chamber, but from the distorted, disordered chamber of my brain had not, alas, departed, and would not be driven away, the white and ghastly spectrum of the teeth. Not a speck upon their surface, not a shade on their enamel, not a line in their configuration, not an indenture in their edges, but what period of her smile had sufficed to brand in upon my memory. I saw them now even more unequivocally than I beheld them then. The teeth, the teeth, they were here and there and everywhere and visibly and palpably before me, long, narrow, and excessively white, with the pale lips writhing about them as if in the, as in the very moment of their first terrible development. Then came the full fury of my monomania, and I struggled in vain against its strange and irresistible influence. In the multiplied objects of the external world, I had no thoughts but for the teeth. All other manners and all different interests became absorbed in their single contemplation. They, they alone were present to the mental eye, and they in their sole individuality became the essence of my mental life. I held them in every light. I turned them in every attitude. 
I surveyed their characteristics. I dwelt upon their peculiarities. I pondered upon their conformation. I mused upon the alteration in their nature and shuddered as I assigned to them in imagination a sensitive and sentient power, and even when unassisted by the lips, a capability of moral expression. And the evening closed in upon me thus, and then the darkness came and tarried and went, and the day again dawned, and the mists of the second night were now gathering around, and still I sat motionless in that solitary room, and still I sat buried in meditation, and still the phantasma of the teeth maintained its terrible ascendancy, as with the most vivid and hideous distinctness, it floated about amid the changing lights and the shadows of the chamber. At length there broke forcibly in upon my dreams a wild cry as of horror and dismay, and thereunto, after a pause, succeeded the sound of troubled voices intermingled with many low moanings of, the so of sorrow or of pain. I arose hurriedly from my seat, and throwing open one of the doors of the library, there stood out in the antechamber a servant maiden, all in tears, and she told me that Berenice was no more. Seized with an epileptic fit, she had fallen dead in the early morning, and now at the closing in of the night, the grave was ready for its tenant, and all the preparations for the burial were completed. With a heart full of grief, yet reluctantly and oppressed with awe, I made my way to the bedchamber of the departed. The room was large and very dark, and at every step within its gloomy precincts, I, enc I encountered the paraphernalia of the grave. The coffin, so menial told me, lay surrounded by the curtains of yonder bed, and in that coffin, he whisperingly assured me, was all that remained of Berenice. Who was it asked me that I, could, that I would not look upon the corpse? I had seen the lips of no one move, yet the question had been demanded, and the echo of the syllables still lingered in the room. It was impossible to refuse, and with a sense of suffocation, I dragged myself to the side of the bed. Gently, I uplifted the sable draperies of the curtains. As I let them fall, they descended upon my shoulders, and shutting me thus out from the living, enclosed me in the strictest communion with the deceased. The very atmosphere was redolent of death. The peculiar smell of the coffin sickened me, and I fancied a, delir a deleterious odor was already exhaling from the body. I would have given worlds to escape, to fly from the pernicious influence of mortality, to breathe once again the pure air of the eternal heavens, but I had no longer the power to move. My knees tottered beneath me, and I remained rooted to the spot, and gazing upon the frightful length of the rigid body as it laid outstretched in the dark coffin without a lid. God of heaven, is it possible? Is it my brain that reels? Or was it indeed the finger of the enshrouded dead that stirred in the white cerement that bound it? Frozen with unutterable awe, I slowly raised my eyes to the countenance of the corpse. There had been a band around the jaws, but I know not how it was broken asunder. The livid lips were wreathed into a species of smile, and through the enveloping gloom, once again there glared upon me in too palpable reality the white and glistening and ghastly teeth of Berenice. I sprang convulsively from the bed, and uttering no word, rushed forth a maniac from that apartment of triple horror and mystery and death. I found myself again sitting in the library and again sitting there alone. It seemed that I had newly awakened from a confused and exciting dream. I knew that it was now midnight, and I was well aware that since the setting of the sun, Berenice had been interred. But of that dreary period which had intervened, I had no positive, at least no definite comprehension. Yet its memory was rife with horror, horror more ho horrible from being vague and terror more terrible from ambiguity. It was a fearful page in the record of my existence, written all over with dim and hideous and unintelligible recollections. 
I strive to decipher them, but in vain, while ever and anon, like the spirit of a departed sound, the shrill and piercing shriek of a female voice seemed to be ringing in my ears. I had done a deed, but what was it? And the echoes of the chamber answered me, what was it? On the table beside me burned a lamp, and near it lay a little box of ebony. It was a box of no remarkable character, and I had seen it frequently before, it being the property of the family physician. But how it came there upon my table, and why did I shudder in regarding it? These things were in no manner to be accounted for, and my eyes at length dropped to the open pages of a book, and to a sentence underscored therein. Why then, as I perused them, did the hairs on my head erect themselves on end, and the blood of my body congeal within my veins? There came a light tap at the library door, and pale as the tenant of a tomb, a menial entered upon tiptoe. His looks were wild with terror, and he spoke to me in a voice tremulous, husky, and very low. What said he? Some broken sentences I heard. He told of a wild cry heard in the silence of the night, of the gathering together of the household, of a search in the direction of the sound, and then his tones grew thrillingly distinct as he whispered to me of a violated grave, of a disfigured body discovered upon its margin, a body enshrouded, yet still breathing, still palpitating, still alive. He pointed to my garments. They were muddy and clotted with gore. I spoke not, and he took me gent gently by the hand, but it was indented with the impress of, a human, of human nails. He directed my attention to some object against the wall. I looked at it for some minutes. It was a spade. With a shriek, I bounded to the table and grasped the ebony box that lay upon it, but I could not force it open, and in my tr terror, it slipped from my hands and fell heavily and burst into pieces, and from it, with a rattling sound, there rolled out some instruments of dental surgery, intermingled with many white and glistening substances that were scattered to and fro about the floor. Is that not the most disturbing story that you've ever heard in your life? So he stole the teeth out of his still loving, or still living obsession? Yes. Yes. Wow. Man, the 19th no! century does not mess around. I know. I, I, I can't believe that I had never heard that story before. And Lucy is convinced, Lucy Blue, uh, my sister, is convinced that I read that story somewhere. And that's where my fascination and horror with teeth come from. Um, have you by but chance? I swear watched, I've never heard it. Have, have you by chance watched Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt? I have not. There's a scene in it where a character sings a song he makes up about teeth and he refers to them as outside bones. And it's really, really, really funny. And I highly recommend uh, finding a clip of that. <laughs> oh my God. Well, it's true. It's, it is outside bones. Like several years ago, I had, um, I had a tooth that, um, that broke. And so I had to go and, you know, you do the whole thing where you go and have the consultation with the dentist. And he was like, okay, so what we're going to do is, is we're going to, I'm going to send you and because of the way it broke, you're going to have to have parts of it removed or whatever. He said, and then what we'll do is you'll come back after that heals and then we'll drill into your skull and put a screw so that we can put an implant on. Yeah. I was so horrified by that. I'm like, you're not screwing anything into my skull. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> So yeah, so I still have a, I still have a fake tooth, but it is not screwed into my head. <laughs> Fun fact about Lex. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but I, really I, I, I'm terrified. I'm terrified of teeth and I don't know what that's about. I mean, I want people to have them and I don't, <laughs> it's like, I don't, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't, seeing people smiles, it doesn't bother me. But like, if they're too perfect, that bothers me. If they're really jacked up, that bothers me. Like, I watched the, um, Netflix has done this new series about the Night Stalker. They yeah. spend an awful lot of time talking about how awful this guy's teeth are. And they show, like, and I'm, and there's, like, there was, like, a whole plan. They almost caught him because they had sticked out a dentist's office. And <laughs> it was, if you haven't watched this, you really, because it's very, it's really disturbing because there's a lot of things about that case that nobody knows about. And apparently they are disclosing it in this, or maybe I'm just sheltering. I don't know, but um, like they had the guy who was in charge of the case. Um, he had this idea to, cause they, they knew the guy had terrible teeth because all the witnesses that had, his survivors had, had described that he had these t- this terrible problem with his teeth. And so he had, said i'll just ask around in all these dentist office offices trying to you know see if maybe this person they could find a person who had visited these dentist offices. well they managed to find this guy because they knew that his name was richard because they had um they had found a homeless person that knew him or whatever anyway it doesn't matter mm-hmm. um so they were actually staking out they had tracked him down to this dentist office and um one of the one of the cops had a friend who was a dentist who said because they got a hold of his x-rays and they were like well if um he's not there he wasn't there today he's going to be coming back in a couple of weeks because he's got a terrible impaction that is going to like really hurt him so they had gone back to this dentist office and they staked it out for like days well they weren't getting anywhere and so they decided just to leave like a um like a, a surveillance camera in the dentist's office and the LAPD was supposed to be checking on them. You know, they had installed like a panic button. So the dentist, if this guy came in, he could hit the panic button. How about the LAPD? The guy came in and the dentist is like hitting the hitting the panic button. The Los Angeles Police Department didn't install the panic button correctly. So it didn't alert them that the guy was there. So he escaped. Oh, my God. Isn't that terrible? So like he could have been caught like months before he was actually caught. If they hadn't fallen down on their job, that is wild. It is all because of his teeth. So, see, now I have another reason to be afraid of teeth. I, I think you've, yeah, I don't know. Now I'm starting to get a little doubtful about teeth. <laughs> I um, know. I know. It's terrible. I'm, I don't know. I'm starting to sound like that guy in that story. I'm obsessed. No, that's, don't worry about it. You haven't dug up the Night Stalker and stolen his teeth. So, not no no not I, yet mm. no. you know i'm actually kind of surprised that nobody um took his teeth and like you know because they like ha- you know that okay you know they talk about how serial killers take trophies but we are just as twisted like i watched the whole thing about a woman who had pieces of john wayne gacy's brain in a jar what yes well she's like a psychiatrist or something and she wanted to study his brain and so she meant before his execution, she managed to get, or after his execution, rather, she managed to get permission from his family to take his brain and analyze it. And so she's got it in a jar, but they have taken so many samples of it. It's basically just like pieces in a jar. Yeah. Well, gosh. Yeah. I'm like, you know, we've got Gacy's 
brain somebody has napoleon's penis i mean it's like we take trophies of dead people too we just don't get any you know they just nobody thinks that's weird look at like all the relics of the catholic church exactly exactly Mm. so so what are you going to read us of yours um well i thought that i would stick with the body horror theme actually oh go for Um, it i read i um contributed a story to a an anthology called let me see if i can get it right witches warrior witches warriors and wise women i think is the name of the book i am so sorry to jason graves at at, um progressive perspective press because i mean like she completely slaughtered the title of that book but uh don't worry i know which which anthology you mean and there will be a link in the show notes yeah Anyhow, so I had an idea for a story because I'm telling you, when I write horror, it's always like I get a flash of a story and then I write it and then that's it. Like I have a hard time coming up with plots for horror stories. I guess it's because I'm, my sisters would say that it's because I'm a sheltered princess and what do I have to be scared of? (laughs) Um, But uh, anyhow, so I had this idea for this, um, this story while I was watching I'm kind of obsessed with this, that it's a show, this show Moonshiners on the Discovery Channel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that show. I think those guys could solve the COVID problem. I really do. Cause <laughs> they're like smart guys, but they use their powers for evil. And, okay. you know, well, I mean, I say evil. I don't think alcohol is evil, but no. anyhow. So I'm watching this show and I got this idea. I was flash. I got this, uh, the idea for this story watching the Moonshiner show. So, Anyhow, I'm probably not going to read the whole thing just because I want people to write to, you know, buy the book, but um, I think that's I'll a fine read. reason. Yeah, but I'll, I'll totally read like all the really, really gruesome parts. <laughs> <clears throat> the story is called Unbroken. That stink coming from the mash barrel don't do much to hide the smell of Caroline's body. Them devils that took her let took her left her laying out like she until she was plum green in the face see you're laughing michael <laughs> i am i'm sorry I'm but sorry. that's a great <laughs> opening line that's a fantastic opening line okay thank sorry, you. go ahead thank you yeah you know i'm like gee he's laughing and i just says something really scary horror is always funny Anyhow. Though, too <laughs> um even now, while Mama and Aunt Sadie are scrubbing her down with lye and rose water, I can smell it. I remember this one time Daddy and me was walking down yonder by the river, and we got to smelling this awfulest smell. It started kind of sweet, like the late summer honeysuckle right before it falls off the vine. But when we got closer, the sweet turned to sour milk, sulfur, and copper all rolled up together. When we come around the bend, we could see an old coon dog laying in the grass, kind of half in the river and half on the bank. Its body was all bloated and rank, and its tongue swole up and lolling. I asked Daddy why the dog's fur was blowing around when there wasn't no wind. When we got closer, I could see that it wasn't no fur. Those was maggots crawling and arriving all over the belly. And I remember I just throwed up right there. Caroline smells like that old coon dog. Steer up that mash good, Bets. Granny Jude gonna need that shine ready to run tonight. Yes, am I passed the time with turns of the stir stick. I could hear it scraping along the bottom of the pot. One, drag. Two, drag. Three, drag. 
I'm hoping I can get so lost in the stern that I can forget that my sissy's body, all bloated and blue, is laying by the fire on a bed of mountain laurel. Even in the shadows, I can see the slashes and the hate they left all over her body. Places where the dried up blood is streaked all over her arms and legs and it still glistens in the moonlight. I can feel the tears welling up in my eyes, making them burn. I don't want to cry no more. Seems like my whole face is tight and crackly like I've been out on the mountain in January, but I just can't stop them. My brothers, Bishop and Josh, they ain't cried this whole time, and they was the ones that found Caroline up on the ridge. I asked Bishop if he was scared when he saw her, and he just shook his head. No, Betsy girl, I ain't scared. He had a funny look on his face when he said that. There's a bunch of shouting on the other side of the clearing, and when I look up, I can see him leading old Granny Jude down the path. Ain't no telling how old she is. She was at least 100 when she delivered me, and I'm 18. She uses a gnarled cane to pick her way through the rocks and roots breaking up the ground. Bishop and his friend Timbo are standing on the other on either side of her, but she's steady as an old mare. She's strong like this old mountain holding us up, but I don't know if she's strong enough to, to work some evil. When she gets close, I can see that glassy dead eye sparkling. It makes me shudder and I have to look away. Bishop always told me if you look too close in that eye, you're going to see how you die. I ain't sure I believe that, but I ain't going to take no chances. Keep a stirring, Betsy girl, Granny Jude says as she passes. She clasps my arm with those craggy fingers of hers. Her hand was cold as ice, even though the fire under the pot in the even the even though the fire under the pot was hot and the sweat's pouring off my brow. It's gonna make a fine spirit. Yes, and I murmur with a nod. She offers a small toothless smile and gives my arm another gentle squeeze. Her feels like her skin feels like moldy paper, but I don't pull away. Mama always says we gotta treat all our elders with respect, but especially the old grannies. One sly and they'll curse you good, she always said. I guess I'm lucky because Granny Jude always shined to me. She said I had the gift, whatever that means. There is one question burning in my brain, though, and before I could stop myself, I caught Granny Jude before she shuffled away. Granny Jude? She turned, smiling like she knew what I was going to say already. Yes, child? Did did Caroline, did she get cursed? The milky eye twi- That milky eye twitches, but Granny's face is kind. She takes my hand betwixt hers and leans in close. Of course not, Bets. Our sweet, sweet Caroline was a good girl. She never crossed nobody. Them boys was just devils. A sob came out before I knew it was going to happen, and I have to lean on the stir stick to keep from falling down. The tears is rolling down my face, mixed up with the sugar and the rise they fall in the pot. Granny Jude takes me by the shoulders and turns me around to face her. That glassy eye gleams in the dark with the other eyes full of fire. And devils always get their due. Timbo leads her away, and for just a second, she keeps her gaze on me. It makes me feel some kind of way, and the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Bishop pulls up a chair right beside Caroline. I watch as Granny's old bones seem to groan and grind while she lowers herself gingerly to the wooden seat of the old-timey rocking chair. For a few minutes, she just rocks, the creaking of the old joints matching time with my stirring. It's the only sound in the holler, which I can't help but thinking is kind of spooky. Usually, there's always birds a-squawking and a whispering hiss of the wind in them old pine trees, but tonight it's just as silent as the grave. It gives me a chill, and I find myself stepping closer to the fire into the mash pot. All right, Betsy girl. I jump when Bishop's hand falls down on my shoulder. Let's get that mash ready to run. There are loved ones in the glory whose dear forms you, you often miss. Granny Jude's voice is like dead leaves underfoot when she starts to sing. It's a song she always sung to us when she was just tea-tauncy. She said her great-granny used to sing it to her. It's such a sad song, but the gentle rhythm of it is, comfort, is a comfort tonight. I swear I'm not going to sing. When you close your earthly story, will you join them in their bliss? She ain't got no guitar, and Bishop's old fiddle don't have all its strings, but Granny Jude don't need none of that. 
her voice and the creaking of that old rocking chair keeping time is all she's got to lull us into tonight's work. My brothers come over and take the stirring stick from me. I step back to watch as they begin pouring the pungent mash into the copper still pot. Now more people are coming down the path. My mama and Aunt Jessamine hold hands while Mima and Miss Grace lead the way into the grove. Cousin Sarah, Miss June, and the Owen sisters follow behind. One by one, the women of the holler join the shoddy circle, taking up the song till their voices rise over the trees and reverberate off the mountain face. Will the circle be unbroken? By and by, Lord, by and by. Mama and Meemaw kneel down beside Caroline. They smile at her with all the love they got left in their hearts. Mama touches her face, brushing the fiery strands of her hair away. She sings a song in a sweet voice like a lullaby while Meemaw takes a rag from the wash tub at her side. The women gather around and begin to wash the blood and muck from Caroline's arms and legs. Granny Jude sees me standing, sees me still standing on the edge of the grove. Her one good eye rolls over, and while she don't say a word, I can feel that blind gaze boring into me. Slowly, I start walking to where they're bathing Caroline. I ain't looked at her this whole time, afraid my poor heart might just break if, I, if and I'd seen her. I can hear Mama and Meemaw singing to her so sweet, and when I get close, it's like she was just laying there sleeping. Is a better home awaiting in the sky, in the sky, Mama whispered as she bl- as she brushed the sopping wet sponge across Caroline's brow. I can smell the soap made special just for tonight. Its strong scent burns my nose, but it helps. Meemaw takes my hand without missing a beat and pulls me down on the mossy ground beside her. The twigs of mountain laurel tear at my knees, but I don't dare say a word. In the light of the fire, I can see Caroline. Her mouth is split from cheek to cheek in a bloody line. Her lips that was once so plump and pink are shriveled and torn, peeled back over broken teeth. Grizzly black jewelry encircles her neck and wrists where they held her. When Mama picks up her hand, I can see the little marks in the heels of her thumb, under her thumb. In the joyous days of childhood, off they told of wondrous love. The moonlight makes her eyelids sparkle and I can see slashes of blue paint. Mama said that when she went off to town that only vipers would be there awaiting. She warned Caroline about painting herself like a whore and wearing high-heeled shoes. She said it would be nothing but heartache. That family was the only thing we got on this earth and she better cling to what she got. But Caroline wasn't the home-loving kind. She had big dreams and she meant to follow them. Caroline was my hero like that. She always said, Bets, you got to go out there and take what's yours if you don't want to be stuck here scrounging for scraps. I can barely see her face through the haze of tears in my eyes. Look what leaving got you, sis. Pointing to the dying savior. The sound of the wooden, pi- wooden paddle scraping the last of the mash out of the pot is loud and, and, and I suck in the cool air. It turns to ice in my throat and I start choking and coughing till the tears start running down my cheeks. Such a little thing, but now I can't stop. I bend down over Caroline, laying my head against her cold, still chest. The rotten stink of her makes me gag, but I don't, but I don't care. I can only cry harder for my poor broken sis. There's a slight warmth on my back, gently patting, and, patting me in time with the music. It ain't Mama or Aunt Jessamine or Meemaw, but Granny Jude that tries to comfort me. She comes down from her old rocking chair and kneels right beside me. I'm sniffing and snorting, but she takes my hand and gives it a squeeze. There now, Betsy girl, you've got to be strong now. I shake my head, wanting to block out her words. When she tries to put the old butcher knife in my hand, I shrink back like it might be a snake. No, Granny Jude, I can't do it. You can, she said, placing the knife in my palm and closing my fingers around the hilt. You will, for Caroline. The song got louder as everyone in the hollow joined. Even the wind through the trees and the chattering of the squirrels started to chant the, the revenant ritual. The orchestra of our voices rose over the mountains. It was a deafening roar, and it hurt my ears. Will the circle be unbroken? By and by, by and by. Bishop and Timbo light the steel with a hollow whoosh. Blue flame lights up the grove, and I can smell the gas heating up under the heavy copper pot. It's now or never, I'm thinking. 
My hands shake as my fist tightens around the knife. As soon as the fires are lit, Bishop and the other men back away. They know their part is done. As Granny says, the power of men don't hold no sway in the veil between this world and the next. Only women, God's own vessels of creation, can pull the cobwebs back and walk with the dead. Only women will be able to pull Caroline back from the Shadowland to take her revenge. Granny Jude whispers gentle prayers in my ears. The blade comes down. First, through the thin fabric of Caroline's favorite dress, the one Mama bought her for church when Sarah got married. Smart blue cotton with little pink roses and lace around the collar. Daddy told him, Don, Daddy told him that dress was too much, but once Caroline saw it in the window of the store, nothing would do, but she had to have it. Mom took in sewing from the town ladies to pay for that dress, and cutting the buttons off now is about more than I can stand. I try not to notice the splatters of blood that stain the lace where they cut her, or the gashes on her neck and chest when I lay the dress open. The cuts look glossy and black in the moonlight next to the pearl skin of her belly. Granny, I can't, I whine again, almost collapsing against the old woman. They already sliced her up so bad. How can I cut her again? Is a better home awaiting than the sky in the sky? She don't say a word, but guides my hand, pushing the blade through the hollow just under Caroline's throat. The blade is sharp, but the flesh is unforgiving. It takes more strength than I thought to push through. I expected there to be more blood, but I reckon Caroline's plumb dry. When the skin opens up, there's more of that rotten smell. I almost gagged, but I bit the inside of my cheek hard. I wasn't going to throw up on my, on my beloved sissy. Granny Jude never looked away as I drawed the blade down Caroline's chest, pushing hard through muscle and sinew. The knife catches on bone, and I can't get it to move. I look back at Granny Jude, and she nods and takes the blade from me. I watch, fascinated, as she saws at it. As the bone give way, I can see the bright white of it against the dark blood that sat still in Caroline's veins. It's so peculiar. The more I cut, the more my sister looks like an old broken china doll. And I'll stop right there. Wow. That's great. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> I really like that. I think that's fantastic. I grew Thank up you. in a family that had moonshiners in it. And, and also like part of my family grew sugarcane. And I remember being a little kid and going to like sugarcane cook downs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that all... It all strikes uncomfortably familiar tones um, yeah. <laughs> from my childhood. That's amazing. I loved that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Tally's family is from, um, they're from the upcountry in South Carolina, but his great grandparents are actually from the mountains in Georgia. And so his great grandfather actually uh, made moonshine, ran moonshine and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, that's i mean that was part of it um like i said i'm i'm telling you i'm obsessed with the moonshiner show and i don't know why it doesn't seem like something that i would enjoy but my dad really liked it and my dad's the one that got me into it and so the last several years i mean my dad and i we did most of our talking about the moonshiner show like we would talk about what happened on the moonshiner show (laughs) that's you know i get that that's for sure i growing up and i grew up about 30 minutes outside of Asheville. And I, uh, and I, as a child, my grandmother taught me how to recognize the smoke from a still. So as she put it, you won't walk up on one of your cousins. Uh, right. And you know, that was the way hey, you was. can get yourself killed doing that, man. Yeah. Very much so. Very easily. Yeah. That's, I but love I it. Just, I, I really liked when I was writing it, I really liked the idea of mixing something like, um moonshining that was that is 
usually thought of as a masculine art form and it 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 really Mm -hmm. is an art form I mean um say what you want to about those guys I mean they are very um innovative I mean (laughs) you know some of the some of the things that they talk about you know ways that they work out problems and stuff um just amazes me and the science behind it um and I'm like you know we tend to see these old guys particularly you know you always think of the of a moonshiner as being like you know, the old guy with no teeth that you can't, you know, can't understand what he says and, you know, and, oh, he must be stupid. Well, you, nine times out of 10, no, <laughs> that guy is, is really smart, you know, um, just smart in a different way. But I really liked the idea of mixing something that was, you know, generally thought of as being so masculine with um, the idea of granny witches and feminine magic. Yeah, And how, you know, um, the men in the story, they get the mash going, but they don't have any part of the magic. They basically, and in the rest of the story, you say they basically just kind of stand back and watch and it's the women that do all the work um, to, yeah. I don't want to say too much because I don't want to give away the end of the story. <laughs> sure. I, I also found it really fascinating that, uh, A, that the grandmother was a presence of warmth once she was like by her sister's body and her the great grandmother, Granny Jude. And uh and then I also really loved the idea of the fire from the still as a ritual fire. You mm-hmm. know, because like she says, as soon as they get the, the blue fire going, then she's like, okay, well it's now or never, you know. And that's a real like ritual magic, ceremonial magic kind of touch to it. I just found fascinating. Love stuff like yeah. that. Thank you. I am, you know, I always, I always find it fascinating that I guess we think, we tend to think of people in the world that, um, that that story is set in as being, you know, very backwards, very American. It's very rooted in Celtic magic and a lot of their, um, a lot of their traditions and things are rooted in that Celtic, um, in that ancient Celtic tradition. And I, I always thought, I always think that that's really, that's a really cool dynamic that doesn't get explored enough in media, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. My grandmother was very outspoken about, um, not exactly like this, the, I mean, to some degree, the cultural aspects of our Scottish ancestry, but like, you know, she had a real thing about like, oh, we're supposed to be in the mountains and this is, you know, we're supposed to be in places where it's cool at night and, and things like that. She had a lot of like real connection to that. And I feel like even though there were many generations between the last person in our family who lived in Scotland and her, like that was a culture that had been very much preserved by isolation, you know? Right. Right. Exactly. Um, it's so funny because my husband, um, Tally Johnson um he of course you know grew up in that in that sort of area um not so much backwoods but um what was what's really funny is he had a profound when he was a child he had a profound speech impediment which I think is really funny because he's a storyteller now um (laughs) but uh he had a profound speech impediment and um sorry my phone just went off how unprofessional is that um (laughs) But uh, anyhow, so 
um, when they were doing, they couldn't really figure out what was going on with his speech because it wasn't really a lisp and it wasn't really, um, he didn't really have an Elmer Fudd thing and it was kind of a stutter, but not really. And finally, he sort of figured it out himself. His great-grandparents spoke in a very um, backwoods mountain dialect, <laughs> which comes from, you know, Scottish Gaelic. It's, it's a very broken Scottish Gaelic. So some of the words that he said that his speech therapist in school didn't understand what he was talking about, he was using Gaelic, broken Gaelic that his grandparents spoke with when because he spent so much time with them and um i think that's absolutely i think that's an absolutely ridiculous thing that they didn't know that and absolutely yeah. um i think that's so cool that he was really speaking two languages he didn't have a speech impediment at all <laughs> yeah i it's funny because my editor at falstaff the first book of mine she worked on she put in a lot of comments about how I was using anachronistic spelling uh, of different things. And she said, you know, it's understandable, I guess, that, that the character of Withrow, who was kind of an anachronism himself, would spell things this way, you know, but um, basically she wanted to make sure I was doing it on purpose. And right. I was like, I didn't even know that these were anachronistic spellings. This is how I was taught to spell in the eighties in the mountains, <laughs> you know, and it turns out there's a ton of language that I use that I just have from growing up there. That is mm -hmm. very dated English. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think it's so funny. Cause like, you know, Tally's family is, you know, very mountainous. They're, they're from that, that sort of area. Mm -hmm. my family is all from the coast so like my grand my grandmother on my on my side she's very um you know she spoke in like broken gullah because her she was from charleston and those and that was a big influence on her when she was a child and we used to make fun of her sister my aunt sarah who now uh, who uh, weirdly enough decided that she was going to she was not going to stay in the south for her whole life and she moved to california she lives in los angeles she's like in her 90s and she lives in los angeles it's hilarious awesome but uh we used to laugh because she would you could barely understand what she was saying because she really did speak on a lot of um she would insert gullah um in there because that's just the area that she lived in so yeah. you've then got this weird uh this very mystical african sort of um you know uh, influence from this side and then you've got tally you know with his scotch irish gaelic mountain people and that i always <laughs> thought we would have amazing children you know <laughs> that would be so weird <laughs> that'd be phenomenal well yeah thank you so much for doing this well, thank you for having me, Michael. It was so much fun. It is so good to get to talk to you. I cannot wait until we can be at a con again. I know. Oh my gosh. I have missed our con people so much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> could you hear that? I'm on a directional mic. What did mic. he say? I could hear him kind of, uh. Uh, Hi, Alex. I miss you too, I said. I, I miss you, Mother Michael. Yeah, he's been listening in. <sighs> yeah 
hopefully soon, hopefully very soon, we will get to, um, you know, do all these things. But I, you know, I was telling my friend Amy lives in Raleigh, and I, we were saying that as soon as everybody is um, vaccinated and this all gets down, we're going to come up there and visit because they bought a new house that we've never seen. I was like, oh, Michael and Michael live up that way. We should just make it a whole thing and visit them too. We're right here in Durham. Yeah. They live right there, um, right there between Raleigh and Durham. They, I guess they technically live in Raleigh, Durham. Well, so there's, there's like a little stretch where, they touch each other and nobody's really sure which is which and uh and we're like on just the durham side of that okay so we're probably five minutes from these people i know i know so yeah that would be so much fun but i miss you guys yeah we miss you too get together fingers crossed soon yes soon soon (laughs) but thank you so much for having me Oh, thank you for being here. Uh, tell us again, like your website or your Twitter or however you want people to be able to find you online. Um, I actually, I just rejoined Twitter. So everybody come and, re- and, and rejoin me on Twitter. I'm at Lexi, L-E-X-X-I-E, Christian. Um, and then I'm also on Facebook as Alexandra Christian. Um, and I, my website is kind of in flux. So it's probably, it's like a Wix site and I'm getting ready to change it over to, it's been a long drama, but if you search me on the internet, (laughs) you will be able to find me. Just search Alexandra Christian author. There we go. That works. Well, I'm going to let you go, but thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. And I will see you soon. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org.